0: at greenlight.com slash ACAST.
1: Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between the economist and author Will Page and me, independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, we're in conversation with a special guest, Paul Sanders, the man responsible for coining the term hypercompetition a point where quantity goes up and quality goes down. More in a moment.
0: Welcome back to Pubble Trouble. Now, we've discussed hyper-competition in the past, the seven-word summary of hyper-competition, when quantity goes up, quality goes down. And we're going to discuss that in the present with the person who coined the term. So firstly, let's welcome along my co-host Richard Gramer. Richard, welcome back. Hey, Will. And secondly, let's welcome to the stage Paul Sanders from State 51. Paul, thank you so much for giving us your time today.
2: Well, thank you for asking me. It's great privilege. We want
0: to dive in because, I'll give credit to Richard Kramer for this, which is when we stumbled on this term hyper-competition, we really felt we have a theme here, which is as long as a long tail. I mean, we've been debating the long tail since that famous Wired article in 2004, so that's what, 15, 16 years ago. We'll be debating hyper-competition for the next 15, 16 years to come. That's our thesis, and we are honored and grateful that you could come onto the podcast today to take us through the origins. So let me dive in with the first question, and I'll toss the mic over to Richard to quiz you some more. But I think the first thing I want to do is get to you and how you think and what you've done in your career, but get to that aha moment when you stumbled on hyper-competition. So a little bit of history about you, Paul. It's fair to say that you were doing Spotify before Spotify.
2: The curse of being early in market. I started the business in 1991. Yeah, that was before even the web. And I think we probably sold our first Downloaded something like ninety seven. Wow! Yeah, you know, around the turn of the century, I was thinking. It seemed to me that the um, broadband ISPs and content were a natural bundle. It just didn't seem reasonable to me that everyone would want to load of subscriptions on top. And the file sharing had proved that you could actually deliver a, an incredibly compelling service, no friction, consumer satisfaction could. Be incredibly high the only trouble was the content creators weren't getting paid and no one knew how to challenge for it play louder msp was an attempt to create a bundle of broadband you know at the time it was adsl and music on one single subscription and so those two friction points
0: it's very important for the context of this conversation because you really did get there first. You were there first with bundle subscription pricing long before Spotify got started. Long before Rhapsody got its 9.99 price tag in 2002. T- 20 years of 9.99 pricing.
2: Well, Rhapsody was making waves for experimenting with a 49 cent download price if you remember. When the when Apple had set the standard download price at 99 cents.
0: So arguably, we can say you got there first with music streaming, but you've also got there first with this term hyper-competition. So let's get into it. What I want to understand is the aha moment, like when in that brain of yours, and, you know, if you have not offended by the term, people often call you the David Hume of music philosophy because your brain works far faster than anyone else I know. But when in that moment of that Paul Sanders brain ticking over, did you stumble on this term hyper-competition, especially seeing it? as a cause for concern as opposed to a cause for celebration. We often hear people saying, there's so much choice and we've democratised access and everybody can get to market. But you came at this term hyper-competition, when quantity goes up, quality goes down. You came at it from a perspective of concern, not celebration. I want to hear how you got into it before I hand over to Richard.
2: Right, so we had had a few years, as you know, of um, the inventory in, you know, that. But digital music changed the way the music industry, the recorded music industry, worked because there were no deletions anymore. The industry used to take product out of the market before putting new product into the market.
0: Yeah, if you couldn't rent your space on the shelf, you were taken off and somebody who could rent the space on the shelf was put on.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that was done at an individual artist level. You'd delete an old album because you wanted to get focused on the new album. So we'd kind of accommodated ourselves to the notion that today's content in the download world competes with yesterday's content and that the inventory will be ever-expanding. But then streaming arrived and there was an acceleration. It turned the market into zero cell. So... Every accounting period becomes a zero-sum game for attention during that accounting period. And all the new content competes with all the historical content in that accounting period. Fascinating. So that's a change of the game. Um, At the same time, there was this democratization. I'm a great fan of it. I I think open markets are a a great blessing um, to all of us and, and fantastic for music, which does have barriers. Um, I don't buy the idea that the old music industry was somehow undemocratic, because it found ways of letting people in from all walks of life. But it didn't let many in. So I think there's something that maybe we'll touch on later where you can really examine the notion that more open markets democratize production, democratise access.
0: You've got my head spinning already. It's like, was there more inequality under communism than there was capitalism? I love those types of debates which turn it on its head.
2: Yes, exactly. And I think the way I think is, is often dialectic. It's, you know, I've got a synthetic kind of approach to these things. So we've got a market that has evolved to bring in just about anyone who wants to make music. And, and the DIY sets were already very well established. A couple of players in the market. Um, The Orchard set the paradigm with an open access physical distribution model. A lot of people forget that. CD Baby followed that up by a CD store where anyone could put five CDs on the shelf. And then when collectively we broke the door down and, and got independent content onto iTunes, CD Baby was one of the first with digital. TuneCall followed up CD Baby by cutting out the inconvenience of the CD part of it, made a much simpler product. You know, a simpler product appeals to a very much broader um, set of producers. So we got this evolution. We got significant players already in the market. As Ditto, you mentioned Pants, I think elsewhere. There was no crisis of distribution that anyone needed to, to solve. And then as the pandemic, sort of bit, and we all went into lockdown. It's, it's an obvious thing for people to do. People who felt that they had an album inside them um, suddenly had a lot of time to sit in front of the computer. At the same time, Spotify, which is the biggest um, recorded music consumer platform, made a strategic investment in a, in a startup called DiscoKit. Now, why at that point did Spotify feel that they needed to expand the supply side there was no crisis every DIY musician had you know, six or seven really very good choices so that was a question that was in my head and then the trigger point there really was a trigger point was the uber ruling in the supreme court in the uk where the judge said that uber drivers were not independent businesses they were employees uber was selling the ride to the rider to the um was selling the taxi service and the Uber driver was employed by Uber to do the ride. And I thought there's a connection. I couldn't quite work out what the connection was, but that was really the trigger point because it seemed to me that the musician had kind of moved into the same kind of relationship with the platform.
0: Well, I know Richard's going to be salvating like a Pavlovian dog when you mention Uber. So let's bring Kramer in here to interrogate further.
1: Yeah, look. Just to to focus this, I mean, that Uber ruling was very specific in saying you can't call the driver an independent contractor because you are directing their work, you are setting the price for their work, and they have effectively no agency on their own. And I guess when I'm looking at the music example, I'm struggling to see equally, and I, I would agree with you, that where the independent artist has any agency on their own, they, they're they not in a position to tell any of the large distribution platforms what to sell their music for. And they are beholden to those platforms for distribution. Can't really affect it that much.
2: They can't negotiate. They, they can't really withdraw. They can't withhold. Yes,
1: they have no agency.
2: They have no agency, exactly.
1: I guess I'd like to shift and talk a little bit about hyper-competition because it's a phrase we use ourselves in looking at the markets and how much do you think this notion of hypercompetition is aided or abetted by just avalanches of cheap capital that have been out there and this sort of land grab mentality to establish a early however you want to call it a a first mover advantage i hate that term but the idea that y- you have to get in first uh, before anybody else and there's no downside cost to failing.
2: Absolutely. And it was yeah, it was quite interesting when you when you compare other markets. I, I think it was um Professor Scott Galloway who made the point that when Amazon put out a press release about getting into healthcare, its share price went up by more than the amount it announced it was going to invest. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so in fact it's it's yeah the Amazon cost of capital was was negative.
1: No, actually, I I think Scott's point was more that the value transfer from the rest of the healthcare industry and their lost market value was greater, far greater than the amount that Amazon benefited by.
2: Yes, exactly. There were two points. One, that Amazon's share price went up. The other, that the the competition's share price went down by more than, yeah, Amazon's benefit. Exactly. I think the point there is that can be very healthy. Because if a competitor comes in and reduces the cost of doing business in a particular field, then the consumer should benefit. And what I'm suggesting with hyper-competition is that the play here is not reducing the cost of the consumer. And we've just had a, a round of price rises from the music consumer, you know, the consumer music services. The play here is a significant intervention in the supply side. Not just to, you know, as a a market share land grab, but to increase an intervention to increase the supply um, beyond the ability of the market to support the supplier. And I think that's the the distinctive thing about what I'm thinking of as hyper-competition. So a couple of points of comparison. The demand for, you know, takeaway food is relatively fixed. The takeaway food platforms are talking about 21 meal opportunities a week um, in order to get that food to you in a you know, reasonable condition mm. fast and hot they need to make sure that there is plenty of you know plenty of logistics capability so they probably need more riders waiting outside the restaurant than can make a living from being riders so there are significant areas where the platform needs to increase supply beyond the ability of the market to reward the provider of that service.
0: It reminds me of that famous Barry Schwartz quote about choice, which is some choice is better than none. Nobody's advocating communism, but it doesn't necessarily follow that more is better than some. Now you can swap the word choice with the word supply. Some supply is better than none. We need supply chains. But it doesn't necessarily follow that more supply is better than some. There are limits, there are constraints to what an optimal market should function. And your delivery driver is a beautiful example of, there's just way too many mopeds outside that restaurant.
2: When demand goes down, they start fighting. The unlocking happened in, in London after the, yeah. you know, the last wave. The police had a significant problem with um, delivery riders fighting for the best slot. And it just took me back to free economics. It's like, why does the drunk dealer live live with his mom? If you
1: remember that, that bond of I guess just to to, to wrap this first half up, I mean, isn't this simply a function of, in so many of these areas, the barriers to entry having fallen so low that, look, anybody can be a Deliveroo driver and a, a rider, and there is just simply no limit to the supply you can throw into the market because you don't bear the cost directly, either because you push those costs out into the future or push them onto investors to subsidize them, or because you just imagine that there's an endless pool of people willing to drive for Uber or or write songs to put up on platforms like Spotify.
2: Yeah. If you look at it from one perspective, increasing the supply is just a natural thing that happens when... Yeah, there's a lot of capital available for this kind of business. Mm. But I think the what turns it from the unlocking of otherwise unused assets or just efficiency in markets is when the welfare is almost entirely captured by the platform owner. So the consumer doesn't significantly benefit. The increase in supply does not benefit the producer, doesn't benefit the consumer. Who does it benefit? It then becomes, as you know, I suspect it then becomes an issue for government and public policy.
0: Well, in part two, I want to get into lemons, but let me close off part one by talking about orange juice. Because what this is making me think about is the story of the supermarket. Everyone knows that everything else is inferior to Tropicana orange juice. But the supermarkets often in America will have an entire aisle dedicated to orange juice to offer so many different choices of orange juice as opposed to Tropicana, to curb the power of the wholesale provider of Tropicana Obliges, to curb their pricing power, because I've got all this choice. Well, that's fine, that makes business sense. You're up against a tough negotiation, so introduce choice to the market to make you the price maker and them the price taker. But then I guess what you're making me think about is, is that the optimal layout of a supermarket to dedicate so much shelf space to inferior product orange juice? That's RNGs. We're going to be back in part two to talk about lemons. Back in a moment.
1: Welcome back to Bubble Trouble with me, Richard Kramer, and the economist and author, Will Page. And we're here with our first ever guest, Paul Sanders, talking about the concept of hypercompetition. And Paul, I guess my question is, does this mean everyone has no fear of entering a new market, that competition is the normal state of affairs and then some? Or have we just forgotten about the downside risk or fear of failing? Our podcasts and the four million titles and the two new episodes, there are two new programs that get launched every minute as it will? Is that a good example of how normal competition has gone into hyper competition? So maybe, Paul, if you want to start off with that as an example, our podcast showing us what hyper competition can do? Well, you can see in music that
2: the new wave of creator tools is intended to make it possible for anyone who has no knowledge at all about music and has never even express an interest in music, has learned nothing about music, to say one Sunday afternoon when it's raining, maybe I'll be a musician. All I have to do is download an app and click a button, and then I click another button and I'm on Spotify. So it's, it's that kind of intervention where being a producer becomes a very casual thing. There's another thing I think we need to look out for, particularly in cultural goods, which is that the ratio between success and failure goes off the scale. So, you yeah, know, the old record label model, in the, in the major labels, it was like thing about one in every 13 projects you got a return on. In the indie world, one in every eight, but only because they spent less. I suspect that ratio for success, the contention for success in, in the digital world, in streaming, is probably more like one in every 100,000, or one in every 200,000.
0: The long tail got longer and the long tail got skinnier.
2: Yes, exactly. So you've got an interesting dynamic there, which is that the head of the market functions just as it always did. It's, it's got a lot of investment, very high production values. The top-end studio is still booked solid. There's still a very vibrant market for very high-end production and skills. But the rest of the market starts to look starved, because instead of being... Um, yeah, that the intermediaries, instead of being investors in new production and new creativity, they find that they have to start charging for services. So when you've got that inversion, so all the record labels started describing themselves as artist and label services companies. Music managers who used to live off a percentage of earnings are now charging a monthly fee. So you got this inversion of the of the relationship from investor to service provider. Principal
0: agent again.
2: That is a a smoke signal, and I think it's a serious one to deal with because what it means is you're, you're gutting the market, you're hollowing out the skills base.
0: Let me switch from music for a second here. I closed out the first part with oranges. How the supermarket will offer a ridiculous amount of choice of orange juice just to curb the market power of the one that you really wanted, Tropicana. And is that a good thing for the supermarket to have so many bad varieties of orange juice on? on the shelf, just for its own self-interest. Where do the benefits of that accrue? Let's go from oranges to lemons. And I have a question for both of you. There's a, a famous Nobel Prize winning paper by George Ackloff called A Market for Lemons, which essentially says, in the second-hand car market, where there's a high degree of risk uncertainty, if you've got a few bad actors in that market, it could collapse the whole market through the perceived value of the second-hand car. That's why second-hand car sellers are so keen to tell you. It's when we had one owner, it was just a little granny, drove it to the shops, the car's fine. trust me, the car is fine. Richard, first, do you think there is for lemons emerging through hyper competition?
1: I guess you know rather than than us pontificating, I'd throw it back to Paul and raising this principal agent problem, but the reality is we have so many more principles than we ever did before. And will you're a recent author of a of a book, Tarzan Economics? But you mentioned to me that there'll be a million titles published this year. And so how yeah. does one sift through the million titles to find the Tropicana among all the other varieties of orange juice? How, does, how do you rise to the top in a world of hyper-competition and overproduction where the principles are so many and the agents or the distribution platforms are so few?
0: And Paul, you'll love this. When my book finally went into production, I called Adrian Furnham, an esteemed professor of psychology at University College London, author of 55 books himself, and told him, that's it, Adrian, I'm in production. The book is ready to go. On the 1st of April, I can say to my mum and dad, I'm a published author. He said, well done, Will. The book will be a huge success. Now, sit back and contemplate what it feels to be a sperm donor, because that's all you actually are. (laughs) You think it's all about what you've produced? You're just one sperm, on a petri dish with many others, and somebody's going to find that egg. Uh,
2: yeah, that's 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 quite a thing to think. Isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm glad he wasn't my tutor. So the sifting again is interesting because you know I suspect that what happens when there's there's too much choice. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being slightly provocative with the term "too much." I suspect what happens is the consumer becomes conservative. What I mean by that is, is that they, you know, they don't start foaming at the mouth and becoming anti-vaxxers. They just retreat to what they're comfortable with. And then they probably become a bit more comfortable with things that are okay. concepts that are well known to them, artists that they know, writers that they're familiar with. Um, and this has always been a feature of, of cultural markets and... It has always been what makes brands valued.
0: Right, and and the first half, I just threw that flippant remark out of the gap between rich and poor being wider under communism than there was capitalism. If hyper-competition, the panacea of democratising access and allowing everyone a shot to market, does produce a greater gap between those who have and those who have not, I think you're onto something there. I don't think Simon Cowell lost power as choice for that, but I think he gained power because when you have hyper-competition, you have more noise in the market, therefore you need even more investment to stand above that noise, which is restricted to the few, not the many. So I think you've got something quite strong there.
2: So it's quite interesting when, you know, when I wrote that piece, I don't really write to, to make waves and I don't really write to be read, frankly. <laughs> I write to try to sort my ideas out, but it got picked up also by a writer for the Daily Telegraph magazine. He'd just gone through an experience of trying to buy a battery charger on Amazon. And he said, why is it so difficult to find a trustworthy bit of electronic goods on Amazon? Obviously, Amazon was one of the first to democratize the online marketplace, literally with Amazon Marketplace, which rapidly accelerated to um, hundreds of thousands of sellers. But then you, you watch the evolution of it, and there aren't hundreds of thousands of things that actually need to be sold. A toaster is a toaster. So who benefits from the fact that there are now hundreds of generic, reasonably high-quality toasters? And each manufacturer of those toasters has thousands of sellers. And the answer, obviously, is Jeff Bezos, He's benefited enough to buy a rocket and and go into space.
0: There, we talk about hyper-competition as succinctly as we can as when quantity goes up and quality goes down.
2: But I don't think that really captures it because I don't think quality needs to go down.
0: Right. But I'm thinking just off the back of that Amazon example and that article from Telegraph by Andrew Amoski, one of the best writers I know, it's interesting to think when quantity goes up because of the platforms play hyper competition, the quality of reviews or the credibility of reviews goes down. Absolutely. And that's just an interesting line of thought to maybe just spread out there for a couple of minutes, Paul.
2: Yes. You know, one of the aspects of the world in which these interventions are, you know, I'd, I'd argue that they're artificially increasing supply, whether that's supply of a good or supply of opportunities to buy a good, the incentives are to find other ways to differentiate. Because as Bolovsky picked up in his piece, something I'd noticed with music, that, you know, we live theoretically in a world where the producer has access to a lot of data about the market. But actually when you try to use the market, use that data in the market to improve your your business, you find that mostly you're being gaslit. This data that you're being fed is, is not useful to you as a producer.
0: And that there is the market for lemons a puree. Exactly. Because your perception of the market goes down because the average number of reviews has fallen below where it should be. So you think the market's been corrupted in some form. Just like that secondhand car market or you just can't trust a second hand dealer because there's been enough bad experiences in the past to damage the overall perception of the, the good that's been sold.
2: I think it's also going to be one of those things that is going to be dramatically affected by lockdown and the pandemic. Because we don't have access to some of the other signals in the market that um we could have relied on. And this is yeah. You know, I only really know about music. So you know, my observations on other markets are, are kind of a casual, maybe semi informed observer. But in music, you'd be getting a lot of signals from the live business. Can this band actually play? How much of the audience jumping up and down? Is anyone willing to travel more than 20 minutes to to see this band? And these are the sorts of signals that you don't really get from the platform business. So I think what probably tends to happen, if you look in the, the food business, again, it's very close to a lot of us. We can observe it. We can see how it's trying to manipulate our feelings about things. You've now got um, several hundred opportunities to buy a generic burger and have it delivered in 15 minutes. Food has become generic. It's good quality. It's very convenient, very tasty, but you can't really argue that it's sort of deepening and broadening choices as consumers.
1: One of the questions that springs to mind here is about a role which is either pejorative or incredibly wonderful, which is gatekeeper or curator, because when you're looking at thousands of toasters, you want one which magazine, which has tested the best brands, the most reliable brands, and we'll tell you, we've tested them all. I'm no toaster expert, but which brand, which which magazine is, and we'll help you choose the best one at your desired price point, versus the the accusation from an antitrust perspective leveled at, the likes of many big tech companies, that they're acting as a gatekeeper, that they're choosing which brands get exposure, often forcing them to pay for access to that audience that they're aggregating, and playing a rather pejorative gatekeeper role, that you can't sell a toaster to all those many millions of people on Amazon unless you pay the take rate that Jeff Bezos or one of his uh, many millions of employees has suggested you need to pony up so how do you balance those two, that role of curation of helpful choice in selection with that role of gatekeeper of someone being the bottleneck, being the one who gets to choose what is offered to you and really limiting that choice and, and excluding many people from the market?
2: I mean, it's very interesting. When you look at the way the the platform terms and conditions operate, they often severely restrict independent curation. And I think that's another one of those signals. If independent curation is somehow prohibited, you've probably got a situation in which hyper-competition is going to develop it in in some way. It would be interesting to think of a future market in which distribution is solved, production is democratised, but curation is enabled as a service that can independently flourish with competition on those platforms.
0: So you're saying it's not necessarily a problem if you expand the shell space, providing you to evolve control of that shell space. That's a way of curbing the adverse impact of hyper-competition.
2: Well, it seems to me something that we'll have to grapple with at some point. I think it would be a very exciting where independent curation was something that could be invested in as, as a business.
0: Paul, at the end of every episode of Bubble Trouble, we do something called Smoke Signals, where I have the luxury of putting Richard on the spot to say, given what we've thrashed out for the past 20 minutes, what can the listener take away from this to make sure that we don't get into bubble troubles again? Remember, we always seem to get into bubble troubles. With every 10, 15, 20 years that pass, there's another bubble, followed by another spout trouble and a stock market crash that follows. So this time we have views. Let's do it this way. Let me toss the mic to Richard to probe you what those smoke signals might be. And then we can see if we can help our listeners spot where hypercompetition is emerging and where it can become troublesome.
1: Yeah, and, and Paul, I'm going to pull on two things you said. The first is on the principal agent problem. How do we know when there's just too much chaff to find the wheat? What is the smoke signal that you would look for in this principal agent balance that we've got way too many principals and the agents are taking all the power?
2: I think you probably need to look at some of the relationships behind that supply side. Um, where the principles are, are paying service providers more than they're earning from their their goods, that should be considered as being not.
1: So you're not a fan of digital feudalism. <laughs>
2: well, you know, I was raised. I was raised very strongly as a liberal humanist. So the the fundamentals I was given were free will, free markets. In order to enter a market, if you have to pay more than you're ever going to get out, you don't really have any viable way of withdrawing from a particular platform and still being in the
1: market, then I think that's a that's that's a big signal.
0: All right. Class half full. Spoke signal number two.
1: Well the other thing I was gonna ask you about is how can we see when hyper competition realizes that critical mass point where it goes nuclear and, and melts down, or the traditional relationship between both sides of a transaction get so out of balance that something feels completely amiss, whether we've got there in the music industry or the publishing industry right now. What would help me recognize that we've gone nuclear and gone into a, a hyper-competition mode from which, in a way, there are no winners?
2: I pick up on something I said earlier about where parties that previously investors become service providers. Mm. I think that's the inversion that you're looking for. So the old way of approaching the publishing business as a publisher was to find great authors and really invest in that author. Give them um, time to work, give them contacts, give them support, give them excellent editors. In the music industry, the the record labels were the major investor in artist careers. Where that um, investment relationship has been worn away so that entities that were previously investors and now service providers and they're charging. I think that's the signal that we've gone nuclear. Hmm.
1: Well, Paul, thank you very much for coming on as our first ever guest on Bubble Trouble. And thank you, Will. Hypercompetition is certainly applicable and evident in the music world, the publishing world, and many other places, and certainly a key element of our thinking about the trouble that we're going to have with the many bubbles that we see everywhere in the financial markets. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Nozum, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. We'll be with you next time. <laughs>